This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. This episode of Brain Matters was brought to you by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. In this episode of Brain Matters, I sat down to talk with Dr. David Morlach, who is a professor of pharmacology at the UT Health Science Center at San Antonio. Dr. Morlach studies the psychological and neural consequences of stress. When is stress good and when is it bad? And what is the difference between chronic and acute stress? Anyways, enough of me. Perk up those cochlea and let's get to that interview with Dr. Morlach. So I want to start off real generally. What is stress? What is stress? Okay. Um, It's actually interesting. Everybody sort of thinks they know what it is and probably has experienced it. But to study it scientifically, right, in in the lab, you have to come up with an objective um, and quantifiable definition, which has been a challenge in our field for a long time. And so, you know, for a while, we sort of accepted the definition of stress as um, a challenge to homeostasis. But I, I think that's unsatisfactory. I don't and I think the field has now moved sort of beyond that because you have threats to homeostasis all the time. And a lot of your physiological machinery, including good portions of the back part of the brain, are devoted to maintaining homeostasis and, you know, defending regulatable variables at a certain set point. When you stand up, um, your body senses a change in blood pressure and it adapts and it modifies heart rate and vasoconstriction that's regulating homeostasis and the act of standing up is a threat, is a challenge to homeostasis. That's not stress. Um, so we sort of modified our notion of stress to be threats to homeostasis that exceed regulatory capabilities and therefore present a challenge to health and well-being. Um, that's kind of a loose layman's definition, but I think that really starts to get a little bit more to what we mean by stress, because you can identify dedicated circuits and processes that are devoted to specific variables to regulating blood pressure or heart rate or, you know, emotional uh, stability or, or various things like that, that are specific. But when you exceed that capability, and start to challenge the, the well-being of the organism, we start to recruit additional systems that may be more general, uh, less specific to a specific um, to a specific stimulus, and that really participate in responding to the stress. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. So what does it look like physiologically when those regulatory systems are exceeded? Yeah, so now having said that we look at something that's general, um, it's actually surprisingly nuanced and, and specific. Although we can start with, you know, going back to the, the concepts of cellier, there is a generalized stress response and we use as sort of our index uh, plasma hormone levels, uh, glucocorticoids. So in rats uh, and, and other rodents, that will be corticosterone in humans is cortisol. If cortis- corticosterone is up, we define that as stress. Um, there are other things that participate, sympathetic nervous system responses. These are all physiological. Um, and you can have sort of more or less physiological stressors. But I think 
in more common usage and certainly how, how we view it in terms of, of psychiatric pathology, we also have stress with a psychological component. And so feelings of distress, um, anxiety, fear, those kinds of responses are adaptive. They're useful because they provoke behavioral responses that ad adapt to a threat or a challenge. Um, those are also indices of, of stress, or at least the perception of stress. So what? when is stress good and when is it bad? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, it, and it's probably one without a real precise answer. Um, unless you're talking about a stimulus that physically can do damage, then stress in and of itself is not a bad thing. What does damage is the stress response. So how we respond to it. So that is inherently an individual thing. Um, there are hardwired physiological response systems, including behavior and cognition, that respond to stress. Um, but a lot of it is shaped by history, by context, by other factors that lead to adaptability, by genetic constitution. And so people respond differently. Let me use the example of PTSD. Um, in being exposed to a traumatic stressor, whether it's combat or terrorist attack or rape or what have you, if you don't exhibit a robust stress response in that context, that's pathological. Okay, so everybody will have a stress response and it will have some duration to it and it will change how you respond to subsequent stimuli pretty dramatically in some cases. That's normal, that's actually good. Um, it's preparing your body for something that may anticipate future stress, future challenges. The pathology comes in when you don't resolve in the absence of continued stress. So um, in the case of PTSD, the inability to return to a more or less normal response to innocuous stimuli, that's, that's the pathology. Um, so stress, you know, you can get very circular. Stress is good when you respond adaptively. Um, that can make you better. A lot of the systems that we study in the brain that are involved in stress actually facilitate uh, sensory capabilities, response capabilities, uh, divert energy expenditure uh, to performance. So that can be a, a useful uh, process in the short term. When it's bad is when it hurts you. <laughs> when you respond inappropriately to small stimuli, when the response doesn't resolve, or when you respond in the absence of, of a provoking stimulus. That's, that's when stress becomes detrimental. What things are associated with leading to these maladaptive responses? Yeah. Like who, be, who, who has these maladaptive Boy, responses? Well, I'll tell you, if we yeah. had the answer to that, <laughs> I mean, that's what we're yeah. striving for. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the idea that there is a predisposition or, or vulnerability, I think, has become very important in, in guiding our research in, in the stress field because, you know, there isn't an easy, this person is going to get sick in response to a stressful stimulus, that person is not. Um, there are so many factors that go into that, as I said, genetic predisposition. And we don't even know what most of, of those genetic factors are, although we have, have clues, and the clues have come from genetic screens and, and various studies that identify uh, linkage. We still don't know how they translate, though, into a vulnerability or a pathology. Previous history, um, one of the biggest risk factors for stress-induced psychiatric illness in adults is early stress. Um, and how that shapes, whether it's epigenetic or it's learning, um, there are a lot of things that go into that. There is a huge push in the field now to identify biomarkers 
that would predict someone who might be vulnerable to stress. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of this is, is stimulated by military-funded research because um, the, the veteran population is so stricken by PTSD and, and other stress-related illnesses that it would be really useful if we could predict, if we had a marker that could predict someone who might be vulnerable and if we understood something about the mechanism for that, even be able to use prophylactic uh, interventions to prevent stress, you know, in a situation where you know stress is inevitable, like combat deployment, um, if there were something we could do, training, drug, <laughs> you know, implant a device, whatever it is, to, to minimize the risk, that would be, I mean, that would be golden. That would be what the field is looking for. Yeah, so is there a sense that once somebody has developed PTSD, it's sort of in it's it's laid down there and it's it's hard to treat and you know what we have available can help but it doesn't really yeah i think like a lot of psychiatric illnesses early treatment early intervention early successful treatment is important um no i mean i think ptsd is not necessarily a life sentence but it certainly is a risk uh and the better treated than the the better off the trajectory is for the rest of life. That's the same for depression, though, too. Um, you know, the index event um, may be treated very successfully, but people who don't respond to early treatment are probably in for a, a chronic long-term um, battle. Uh, and that's true of, of many psychiatric uh, disorders. If we could get better treatment, then we could improve not only the response to that particular episode, but reduce the likelihood of, of chronic lifetime illness. Could you talk about the difference between acute and chronic stress and maybe where those stressors occur yeah. in our lives and how these uh, different types of stress manifest physiologically and uh, psychologically? Yeah, sure. Um, and again, there's no clear demarcation. I mean, that you know, it's a gradient. Um, and it's really sometimes defined, again, by the response. An acute stressor is something that sort of can be defined in time, that can be, you know, it's, it's discrete. And a response can be effective in alleviating it, right? So something happens, you respond to it, it goes away. You had a stress response. It may have taken a toll metabolically or what have you, but it was effective and, and you're better off for it. Um, chronic stress is stress perhaps where the response is ineffective. It won't go away. It may be outside of your control and uncontrollability, you know, chronicity and uncontrollability are not the same thing, but they're both um, bad. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, some of the research that we've even done recently um, in showing the factors, the, the processes that are important in responding to a, acute stress successfully are the same processes that contribute to the long-term detrimental consequences of chronic stress. Um, this is true of, you know, it's an old story in, in the hormonal literature. Uh, Bruce McEwen has studied what he calls allostasis for a, for a long time, um, that the glucocorticoids are mobilized to help you respond better physiologically. You know, it's a, it's a little short dose of the bionic man, but that exacts a pretty significant toll on, on your body and on your brain um, if that is repeated, if it's chronic, if it's unremitting, um, then that's where it starts to become detrimental. Uh, in life, I mean, you know, we encounter acute stressors all the time um, and respond adequately to them, uh, almost to the point where that's just, you know, people like that happens and you deal with it and, and it becomes not noticeable. Chronic stress can be 
as I said, something where a situation's out of your control. It can also be the way you perceive it. Um, you know, there is an old theory about depression, for instance, that the way you interpret what happens in the world contributes to the depressive um, state. And someone who gets locked into a very rigid framework of interpreting everything negatively about the future, about the world, about themselves, um, that creates a mental state that is chronic stress. Because living in a dangerous, threatening, hopeless world is not a good thing, right? Even yeah. if that's of your own creation. So um, that, I think that's a significant contributor to a lot of uh, psychiatric disorder. I'd like to shift gears and talk a little bit about the neural mechanisms that are related to causing these uh, uh, the stress response and, and the hormonal changes. So what are the sort of basics, you know, the, the textbook? Okay, uh, well, I mean, the framework. The, yeah, the basic physiological response to stress has two limbs. It's the sympathetic response and, and the hormonal response, the HPA axis, which is hypothalamic pituitary adrenal. Um, that kind of describes the anatomical framework. Uh, for the hormonal response, the paraventricular nucleus and the hypothalamus is the output from the brain. Um, secretes CRF, which is, is distributed to the pituitary, which then secretes ACTH, which goes into the bloodstream, causes the uh, release of glucocorticoids from the, from the adrenal cortex. So that's kind of the physiological part of that. How that gets driven in the brain, um, is manyfold, uh, many circuits, but they all converge on the hypothalamus, on the PVN. Um, we mentioned the distinction between physiological stressors and psychological stressors. Those stimuli, those contexts, get access to the brain through different routes. So loss of blood is going to be sensed by peripheral baroreceptors, and they transmit uh, the signals through the vagus to the brainstem, which then sends projections forward that ultimately reach the hypothalamus and elicit a stress response. If you're perceiving a context as being stressful, that involves a lot of sensory perception, but also cortical processing and thinking about it and interpreting it. And that then gets distributed down through relays in the limbic system, the amygdala, the bed nucleus of the striate terminalis, probably the hippocampus, um, that ultimately through polysynaptic pathways get to the hypothalamus and elicit the same response. Um, the same sort of dichotomy and, and multiplicity of, of afferent pathways is true for sympathetic activation as well. The basic machinery is in the medulla, the hindbrain, um, receiving afferents again from peripheral receptors and then motor neurons in the ventrolateral medulla that project to the spinal cord and activate sympathetic um, activity. Um, but they also get a lot of descending projections from a lot of regions in the forebrain um, with reciprocal connections. So it's taking, it's utilizing circuitry that exists for very basic physiological processes, activating them in these different contexts. Can you talk about the specific products they have going on in your lab and what, what sort of things you've discovered? Yeah. Sure. About um, the brain? Yeah. So since we started, uh, a long time ago now, um, my lab has focused on brain norepinephrine as a neurotransmitter in the stress response. Norepinephrine is also a peripheral hormone, a sympathetic uh, mediator. But in the brain, it also functions um, to modulate the activity of target systems. So when norepinephrine is released, it doesn't necessarily activate or inhibit cells in its target, it changes how they respond to inputs from other 
regions. Um, and it's actually very curious what norepinephrine does. It amplifies excitatory responses and it amplifies inhibitory responses. If you put that sort of into the context of baseline activity versus evoked activity, um, it increases signal to noise in synaptic circuits, um, making those circuits more effective and more salient against background. Um, so when norepinephrine is released, it facilitates the functions of whatever neural circuits uh, that release impacts. And we hypothesized at the very beginning that norepinephrine would be released in two contexts, increases in arousal, so kind of a state change, and acutely in response to stress. And we didn't discover that. We participated in a whole body of research that showed that that's the case. Um, where we came in at the beginning was then to test the notion that that increase in norepinephrine would facilitate, would indeed facilitate specific responses that were evoked in response to stress. And so by using a strategy that combined microdialysis and local microinjections of, of receptor antagonists, we kind of pursued a several-year line of research to test that hypothesis to measure regions in the brain where norepinephrine was released in response to an acute stress. And then in those regions, we delivered drugs that blocked norepinephrine receptors and examined what was different about the way that the organisms, we use rats in the lab, uh, what was different about the way they responded to an acute stress. And so the major con contribution there was that norepinephrine indeed facilitated whatever response was invoked by the stimulus that had provoked the stress. But because norepinephrine doesn't have many direct effects on its own, in brain regions that weren't recruited by the stressor, norepinephrine didn't do very much. So it was a way to change brain state function to selectively facilitate um, relevant circuits that were being activated by stress. So that was kind of the first major thing. And then more recently, we started to look at chronic stress and how that facilitatory function might contribute to um, long-term deficits. Um, we've really focused on cognitive changes in recent years because the medial prefrontal cortex is central to not only the stress response and emotional regulation, but it's also implicated in most psychiatric disorders that we're interested in. Um, then the flip side to all our projects is that we look at therapeutic mechanisms and how um, drug or other types of interventions um, could either fix or counteract <clears throat> what was compromised by chronic stress. And in terms of uh, pharmaceuticals uh, that treat stress disorders and anxiety disorders, how do those impact the brain and uh, are they are, are they modulating the norepinephrine system, and how does that uh, manifest? Yeah, well, we started with that because the drugs that are most widely used for um, anxiety disorders and depression, which are, are some of the more prominent stress-related psychiatric disorders, all influence monoamine signaling, so reuptake blockers, um, either norepinephrine or serotonin or both. So that's kind of where we started. Um, and I think we got some useful, but maybe a little bit predictable, answers from that line of research. Starting there, though, and actually starting with the premise that those traditional antidepressant drugs are only effective in a portion of patients and only partially effective in many of the patients that, that do respond, but that a significant um, percentage of, of individuals do not respond to those drugs, we thought, okay, there, there must be other targets. And the monoamines, in fact, we have some research now that, that actually goes against 
the monoamine theory of depression, that's depletion or, or loss of monoaminergic function that underlies depression, I think that's probably not the case, at least in most instances. And so those drugs are maybe at best compensating or overcoming some deficit without actually fixing it. So we've recently looked at some novel pharmacological treatments. One that's very um, hot in the field right now is ketamine, which is kind of unusual. It's an NMDA receptor antagonist. It's a dissociative anesthetic. Club um, drug. And also a club drug. It's special K. Yeah. Um, it, uh, at low doses, it's been shown now in clinical populations to have very rapid uh, antidepressant efficacy, in particular in, in treatment-resistant depression. So it's patients who don't respond to, to traditional antidepressant drugs with a single infusion of ketamine at a relatively low dose. Within hours, they show a, a dramatic improvement in depressive symptoms. And it lasts, you know, maybe a week or so, um, which is a problem um, that it's so short-lasting. But using that as a starting point, um, it's now an intense area of investigation. What are the mechanisms for its efficacy? What other types of drugs or related types of drugs might be able to target those same mechanisms without a lot of the, the undesirable um, components of ketamine? And so we're using ketamine. We're also using behavioral therapy <laughs> in our rats. Um, How does that to, look? It actually looks pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about um, it. I'll tell you a little bit about it because okay. we still have a, yeah, yeah, a it's still in grant under review. Yeah, yeah, um, but, you know, we basically started with the notion that if the medial prefrontal cortex was dysregulated in a lot of psychiatric disorders that have cognitive components um, to them, and that agents that effectively treated the disorder somehow restored function, plasticity, signaling in that circuitry, um, and we were using behavioral tests as an index of the efficacy in that circuitry, what if we were to turn that around, take those behavioral tests, use them as therapeutic interventions instead, mobilize the circuitry, activate those signaling processes, would that be therapeutic? Um, and it turns out in our models, it is. And so we're now applying, though, the same neurobiological investigations to these behavioral interventions that we do with the pharmacological interventions. So we find certain signaling pathways are turned on after ketamine. Um, the same signaling pathways are turned on after we do a behavioral intervention that also has a, a positive effect on, on behavior that's been compromised by stress when we test it um, a few days later. So just sort of treating behavioral therapy as an intervention, the same way that we would a pharmacological treatment, we're getting at the mechanisms for both the acute response but also long-term beneficial effects by looking at the same circuitry and signaling pathways uh, in the prefrontal cortex that we do with, with drug treatments. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Yeah, um... How has recent technology, has there been a recent technology that's emerged that's really that you're excited about implementing in your research, or is there something you see on the horizon that'll facilitate um, our study of stress yeah. disorders? No, I mean, it's, it, it's a great question, I think, generally, because, you know, we all like to get on the bandwagon with the latest, greatest thing. Um, and you'll see, you know, for people who participate in grant review, for instance, there are just waves of grants that come through all utilizing, you know, the latest, greatest technology and you know, some maybe using it in an appropriate, relevant way, but a lot using it just for the sake of, of getting in. So, 
You know, I'll be honest, I've, I've not been an early adopter. <laughs> I'm not a beta tester of, of a lot of um, new technologies. I, I just got my iPhone um, 5S, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Cheaply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because when the 6 came out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, um, we don't have a lot of um, room for error in our research. Uh, either for resources, you know, spending money, but uh, in the case of a student or a postdoc, you know, they don't have years to waste pursuing something that, that doesn't pay out. Um, and, and then they have to go back and start over again. And there's, there's a finite amount of time. So I've always been a little bit cautious uh, in adopting the latest technology just for the sake of adopting the latest technology. We have, you know, some established methods that we know will be productive, then you run the risk of getting predictable and boring. So uh, I think the trick is really to find a balance. Um, you know, make sure, we call it backfill experiments. Make sure that there's always that churn where you know that if you're spending your time doing a set of experiments using an approach that works, you're going to get publishable data. And therefore, the people working on the project will always have work product. They'll always have something to show for their efforts. But at the same time, we multitask. And so I always want people working on multiple projects and also working on multiple things within a project. And so that's where we can start to try some of the latest, greatest things or just a new project. Uh, about five years ago, I had a grad student who had just joined the lab and a postdoc who had just joined the lab. And they were really excited to start this new project on microglia and cytokine signaling in the brain, which I had never done. And I won't say I had no interest in, I had no connection with, I had no knowledge of. And so I had never even looked there to do some of our research. But the, the, there was some heat in the clinical field about the role of inflammation and cytokines. And so they wanted to take up this new project. And so we did it, but we did it really slowly. Um, they probably snuck a few experiments in that I didn't know about <laughs> until they got results. Um, and, you know, when we would have our, our lab meetings or our group meetings with this, this uh, uh, group of individuals, I always told them, look, I've got my finger on the abort button. And so if today's meeting is not satisfying, <laughs> I'm going to abort. And they would give me just enough to keep me happy so that we would continue. Uh, and in the end, um, that turned out to be a really gratifying project for us because I did force them to take the baby steps and to do, you know, what worked for us. Use our techniques. Yes, study this new thing, but do it in the way that we know we're good and can be productive. And they did. But they also brought stuff to the lab. We did cell, cell culture for the first time. Um, we did viral vector gene delivery for the first time. Um, we did a lot of other things in the course of that project that we had never done before in service of a subject matter that my lab had never addressed before. And they ended up with some really nice publications. One just came out earlier this year in Journal of Neuroscience that has already been highly cited. So, you know, that paid off. But I think that represented the nice balance between sticking with what you're good at and what you're productive at and extending yourself a little bit, swinging for the fences a little bit. I've got a new student in the lab now who's learning our basic fundamental techniques and is also going to start doing some dreads in optogenetics, which is, you know, the, the trend now. That's the state of the art. Uh, and that's what you have to use in order to be current. We don't know if that'll pay off or not, but it's worth a try as long as she's still producing, um, doing the, the old school stuff. <laughs> uh, so what are the things you enjoy most about being a scientist? Huh. Um, 
I have to say, there are a few things I don't enjoy. Yeah. But most of it is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I don't enjoy are the things that we take on voluntarily as leaders in our field, administrative issues, um, playing defense a lot for our program, for our research, for okay. our students. Yeah. Um, you know, that stuff gets a little old because it's almost like I can't understand why the whole world doesn't think the way I do, you know? <laughs> and that's frustrating. Yeah. But when that gets a little tough, I just go back into the lab. And I don't do experiments myself. I go back into the lab and talk to the young people who are training with me. And they're getting it. You know, they're, they're doing work that's important. They're doing work that is exciting. Uh, it's advancing our field. They're enthusiastic about it. You know, they have nothing but bright futures. I mean, that's really gratifying. So I have, you know, there's an altruistic side. I love training students and postdocs and, and other, other types of trainees. That feels good. Um, I like it when our work makes an impact. I like to feel important. Uh, when my colleagues tell me, wow, that was a really good paper. I'm going to use that to, to do my next experiment or, Somebody says, that's going to help us treat our patients. That feels good. I guess that's a little egotistical, but that's okay. I don't mind that. Um, I like to travel. I like to visit other universities like UT and, and um, visit with colleagues. I like the camaraderie and the collegiality. We're all competitors for a small pool of funding. Um, we're all chasing sometimes the same research target. Um, and yet we go to meetings. We share our data freely. We share our progress, our failures. Um, we help each other along. Uh, that's that's a pretty special profession, and and um, I get gratification out of all of that. Great. Um, are you able to pursue any hobbies or other interests outside of neuroscience? Or really <laughs> something else you can you spend a lot of time. Yeah, involved um, in. Well, a few years ago, I was a soccer referee, uh, uh, yeah. and I actually started in that. My daughter who's now going to be 30 shortly, um, when she was about seven. <laughs> uh, we were in California, and she was invited by her brand-new schoolmate. We had just moved there, and a friend that she made said, my dad coaches a soccer team. You want to be on it? And she had never played soccer, and she said, sure. Um, and I was the only parent not to be at the first parents' meeting, and so I was elected unanimously to be the team referee. <laughs> um, yeah. And I had never played soccer and had never even seen a game, I think. Um, and so I started at the same time she started, and we actually kind of advanced together. And so for about 12 years, I was a soccer referee and, and got pretty dedicated to that. And that took a lot of my free time for a while. But I had to retire um, because I started to get up in years and couldn't keep up with the training without injury. Um, and now, um, you know, I like to be physically active. I think that's useful when you spend the day thinking. Um, I like to go to the gym in the evening yeah. and pound a machine um, yeah. or hit a treadmill or be in a class where this drill sergeant makes me hurt. Um, I, I think that reset is nice. Um, and there have been times when I've been sitting on a machine and had a really good idea or an answer to a problem that we've been mulling for a while. And I think just clearing your head, doing something physical um, is a useful release. Um, 
you know, and then time with family, time with friends. Um, that's about it. Yeah. Um, so since you have studied stress for so long and thought about it, how has it changed your relationship to stress in your everyday life? Have you? Yeah, not so good at that. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I think I try to focus on, on my own personal life, but also professionally. There are some things you just can't control. So don't bang your head against a wall trying. Um, focus on what you can control. And maybe part of that is expanding that universe of what you can control. You know, if you can do things to gain control, that's useful. Uh, th that's the best I can say. I mean, I still um, hate most other drivers. Um, <laughs> maybe that's a useful way to let off steam so that I don't get in trouble with, with my administration. Um, you know, there are things about uh, our profession, there are things about just living a life that, that get frustrating. And, you know, I don't pretend to have this Zen mastery of, of stress um, just because I study stress and can understand its process. Um, I'm very passionate, but I think with that passion comes a certain degree of <laughs> reactivity. Um, you know, and I do come back to, especially when I'm counseling my students or my, my trainees who are also feeling stress, you know, some of the advice I give them, if I would ever stop and listen to it, I would be a lot healthier and happier. But I think really it's just focus on what you can control. Try and and understand what you want out of any situation. What What is your goal? And if you can do things and exert your efforts toward that goal, then you're probably going to be a lot happier and feel more gratified than if you're either trying to do things you can't control or spending a lot of time trying to achieve something that isn't really what is not what you're after. Um, I don't know if that's a helpful life philosophy or not, but that's the best I can do. I still yell at the other other drivers though, I, I, especially on I-35. Yeah, <laughs> coming up to coming up to Austin. Yeah. yeah. Great. I think that's fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. All right. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was brought to you by Audible.com, which is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook you may consider is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, written by neurologist Oliver Sacks. Brain Matters recommends this title to those looking for the human side of neuroscience. To download this audiobook for free, or another one of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.